0: So I have some instructions for you this morning from the very beginning. The homework comes at the beginning, at least part of it, and that is this. This uh, can be used in the applications at the end, and hopefully, if I've done my job well here today, it'll make sense, but um, whenever, I'm going to give you some instructions on how to listen to a sermon, okay? And you have my permission and even my encouragement to, to hold me to this and to do this. Uh, to whoever stands behind this pulpit to preach, and that's to ask yourself a really simple question. We have a short passage. The, The question I'd like you to ask yourself is, what is the point of the text? And then after the sermon, I want you to ask yourself, what was the point of the sermon? And they should be obviously the same thing, or so close that you understand how they relate. And then, I I know you guys, you guys are very nice Christians, and so when I ask you or if you offer your feedback, it's always good and it's positive, and that's great. And I hope it's sincere and genuine, but if it's not, um, you have, again, my encouragement to come and say, you know, why? Why did it, why didn't you, you know, mention this or that? Because this is uh, participatory, brethren. I am standing here with God's word before God's people, and I'm saying essentially, if this is done well, this is what God is saying. And so there is a responsibility on the hearers to be engaged and to be testing all things by the word of God. The question isn't, is it, you know, was it captivating? I hope it is. Is it funny? Is it applicable? All those things should be there. But the litmus, the test is, is the point of the text the point of the sermon. So with that, I have an introduction to you. After our introduction, we'll read our text. I'll ask you to stand at that point. Over 60 years ago, a Presbyterian minister named Donald Gray Barnhouse, he wrote a poem. It was entitled, If Satan Took Over Philadelphia. I've adapted it to our current setting and my poem is entitled, If Satan Took Over San Diego. If Satan took control of San Diego, the marijuana dispensaries would be closed, pornography would no longer be accessible on the internet, the homeless would be removed from the streets, the gas lamp district would close promptly at 8 p.m., drag time story hour would be abolished from our libraries, children would walk around with their heads held high saying, yes sir, and no, ma'am, their cell phones rarely leaving their pockets. every Sunday would find the roads empty as everyone would be at church in Christ and Christ would never be preached. I want you to understand from the start of this passage that we will be looking at a, a, some a text that has some very clear imperatives and And Charlie, thank you for doing such a good job with the background. You set such a a great understanding of the text. Clear commands come from the Scripture as to how Christians should and should not act. However, these commands, ripped apart from the motivation of loving Christ, will serve to do nothing more than to yoke you to empty moralism, powerless legalism, at the heart of every command given by, to the children of God, my God, lies a desire, or should, lies a desire for us to walk in the light, in fellowship with our Creator and King, motivated by a love for Him. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll do my best, brother. Um, with that... Stand with me, please. I will read our text for today. Our text comes from 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 7-11. through 11. Um, There is a lot of background. One of the challenges in, in doing verse-by-verse, verse, and that's, that's what we see here. That's what, at GBC, that's a benefit. But there's lots of um, content. There's lots of, uh, there's a lot more... Um, What's the word I'm sorry for? There's a, there's a lot more that applies to this text than we deal with today. So I encourage you to, to be students of the sermons and to remember what preceded uh, the text we'll be dealing with today, or it can seem at times to not be encompassing all that's being said here. And that's true, because John has said more than what we're going to read today. I'll read the first 11 verses, actually. Uh, this is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1, chapter 2. My little children. These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But Whoever keeps his word, truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walks. Then our text for today, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Our mighty God, your word is perfect and we've come today, Father, to hear from our God. Open your word to us, Father. May we love Christ more and in turn, may we love one another more. Father, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. You guys are a quiet bunch this morning. I encourage you, if the, if the Holy Spirit is illuminating the point, if I am explaining things well, feel free to affirm that with amen. I have three points today. They will come up in succession. I won't give you all three of them now. Uh, but the first one, I will tell you, is an old commandment explained. In fact, I don't think I told you the name of my sermon which is a new old commandment. So the sermon is a new old commandment, our first point is an old commandment expanded, expanded. Uh, verses seven and eight, or seven and eight A. What exactly does John mean when he says in verse seven that he writes no new commandment, but an old, only in a state in verse eight again, a new commandment I write to you. Did you guys notice that when I was reading? Okay, brothers and sisters, I would hope that when we approach the Word of God, that when we see things like this, that we don't just gloss over them, that we don't say, oh, that, that's, well, that's strange, and then keep reading until we find something that is a little easier to understand at our first reading. I would hope that we would come to the text, or I would encourage you to come to the text as we will today, and to say, John, what exactly do you mean by this? Why do you write this way? Why do you talk this way? Why has the Holy Spirit inspired you to lay out His truth in a way that seems immediately contradictory on the surface, right? So with with these things in your mind, let's look at the text and let's ask ourselves some questions and let's see what the the text itself reveals about itself. Turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. And while you turn there, I have a couple of verses uh, that stand by themselves that I want to read to you. So you're turning to Matthew 22. Um, from the Old Testament I'll just read this to you. don't have to turn there. Leviticus, 19:18 B, the second part, "You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord." And then Deuteronomy 6:5, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength." Those verses. Along with the Ten Commandments, as again, Charlie did such a great job setting the, the background of this. Uh, this is the backdrop for the conversation we're going to read right here. Jesus is about to have this conversation with the Pharisees in Matthew 22. Let me read to you. Uh, verse 34 is where we'll start. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see the backdrop. You see what's going on there. The the Pharisees and the Sadducees were a group, groups of people in, in Judah. They didn't really get along. Uh, they w- you could call them, if you were the Judean deep state, right? They were the entrenched powers uh, that ruled politically and spiritually in the land. Not getting along, but like, like we are today, as we see because we're the same people, whenever something comes in and challenges that power structure, people that don't normally get along will be glad to get along. To keep uh, that that threat at bay, and so that's what's going on here. Uh, the Pharisees knew that uh, Christ had stumped the Sadducees, and so this Pharisaical lawyer, this Pharisee lawyer, comes and he he doesn't necessarily ask a question, or he does ask a question, but the goal of his question is is not information, right? You see that? What was his goal? Why did he ask him a question? You see that? To what? To test him, right? He asked Jesus a question to test him. He wanted to get Jesus to say something controversial. Well, if they were listening to what Jesus was teaching, Jesus said lots of controversial things, but it was only truth, right? He's trying to trap him here. And Jesus' response is essentially a summary of the Old Testament, right? He refers back to the the passages that I read from Leviticus Deuteronomy. He summarizes the Decalogue, the, the whole Ten Commandments. And it's, at its essence, he's saying this, love God with everything you have and demonstrate that you love God with everything you have by loving your neighbor or loving God is the greatest, but the second is likened unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's going on there. That's his answer to this. Jesus tells us all of the Old Testament can be summarized by the idea of loving God with all your heart, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. This is the old commandment John is referencing. John assumes the reader has a point of reference here. And I assume that also, that you understand that that is the great commandment. Um, an understanding of the duty to love God and neighbor. And on that foundation, John is now going to give a new commandment. So you're tracking with me, you follow what's going on here. This, this old commandment that he references at the very beginning of chapter, uh, verse 7 there is... Uh, as likening back to this idea that we love God with everything as primary affection and then our neighbor as ourself. And on that foundation, John is going to give a new commandment, which is not a new commandment at all. Rather, it's an expansion. He's giving an expansion of what that is, a fuller application of what obedience looks like based on the demonstration of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So what's changed? The commandment is not changed. The ability to have victory, to do this, is what's changed, right? We see this a lot, this idea in the Scriptures, of, of a, something being true for a certain people at a certain time, yet later we see that, well, there was more to that, right? We, we see the... the Israelites in the wilderness, the wilderness of sin, right, wandering around, wandering in the darkness in the wilderness of sin, and then crossing the Jordan River, and then going into the promised land, a land land flowing with abundance, milk and honey, where the Lord would commune with them in the temple, right? That was real. That really happened. There was real people that did those things, yet we understand that the way the Scripture's utilize that as we move on as this analogy it's analogous to what us in our sin wandering around and the lord saving us and then we die we cross the jordan in death and where do we go we go to the promised land where we have perfect communion with our lord that is how the scriptures use uh, truths that really happened and expand them that's what john is doing here John is telling us that this old commandment, that we should know, love God, is simple to understand, right? Simple to understand, hard to apply. This, This idea of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself now is new because of Christ, even though the command stood from the beginning, right? You guys with me? Yes? All right, very good. Very good. If you don't want to speak up, you can nod your head. That's fine. So how is this old commandment made new? I explained that a bit already. It's made new in the sense that we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and are actually capable of progressing in obedience. This is real, brethren. There, there, there's a there 's a sense that the the saints of the Old Testament that we will be in glory with did not have the same tools or tools singular the Holy Spirit available to them. This old commandment that was apl- a- applicable to them they could never display the same level of obedience as we have the option to do we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and are actually capable capable of progressing. In obedience, we have, in addition to that, the demonstration of Christ's life and our indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. That is all that is necessary to have victory and to demonstrate obedience. <clears throat> now, as it was stated earlier, As I mentioned in the opening, the the introduction, there is a lot of application here. There is a lot of emphasis on these things being evidences of love, being demonstrated. But don't misunderstand that the the primary thing here is, the the primary motivation here is love. If you can remember the, the, the overarching point from the previous sermon, the previous text, was God's Children love him. And they demonstrate love in obedience. That carries right on. These are the next few verses right after the the last sermon that we looked at. The primary means of demonstrating our allegiance to Jesus Christ is not a Trump or DeSantis sticker 2024 on your car. It isn't being an outspoken proponent of the Second Amendment. It isn't... And being anti-woke, and it isn't in being a Daily Wire premium member, platinum member, gold member. It's not even in the work that we do at the San Diego Rescue Mission or at Planned Parenthood. You see, those things can be good. It's not the primary way. They can even be a demonstration of love. It's not the primary way we demonstrate it. The primary way that we demonstrate that we belong to Jesus Christ, that we are his disciples, is that we have Love one for another. The primary way that we show that we belong to Jesus Christ, that we're His children, that we're His disciples, is that we have love one for another. This love that we have for one another, it produces action. We say in our family, love is a verb, right? It's not an adjective. You can use it as an adjective. Love is an action that produces something. So, So free yourself of these sentimental ideas that we have about love being just this warm and fuzzy feeling inside of us. Our culture has done a, a, a tremendous disservice to, to, to us, right? We all live in this culture. We're all influenced more than we realize. A terrible disservice to, to twist what love actually is. It's, it's the, the, the rom-coms. It's the post-apocalyptic vampire romance stories, all the weirdness that's out there. We, we reject that, but those ideas come in, right? That love, love is how you feel. But that's not the way the scriptures talk about love. Love is a verb. Love produces action. In fact, to take it a step further, I would say, the human way of thinking about love is that our actions... Uh, they, that, that our emotions precede our actions. So because we feel love, then we do these things. And, and we often operate like that, but that's not biblical love. Biblical love says we set our mind on things that we have to do. The things that the Lord has given us to do, we do those things, regardless of how we feel. It's a blessing when we already have the motivation, Right? But, you know, in life, we won't at times, right? Many times we won't. And the Lord says that as we are obedient out of a love for our Father, in the obedience of these actions, then the emotions come. Then the emotions come. When we actually do what He's given us to do, you see, because the Lord's Word, the Lord's commandments are not just rules. They're an outcropping of who He is, His nature, His character, And he loves his children. And he gives his children guardrails. And he says, don't do those things because they're bad for you. They're not good. His instruction is good because he is good. So free yourself of a sentimental idea that love is a secret feeling hidden deep in your heart. This new old commandment was personified In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, He bent down and He washed His disciples' feet. The demonstration of love. You know the historical context, I assume. Maybe you don't. Feet were disgusting back then. They still are, but even worse, right? They walked around unpaved roads where the animals walked. They had sandals. And the Lord of glory, the one who created all things, stooped down and He washed His his disciples' feet I think it's easy for us to see that as loving. There's other examples that are maybe a little more challenging. He rebuked Peter in his error, calling him Satan. When his misguided statement, Peter's, was a contradiction to what Jesus said must happen, Jesus calls him Satan. Think about that. We read, uh, uh, Charlie read in that passage that God is love, right? You, you hear If you do, if you do street if you if you share, uh, if you do evangelism just with strangers, you're going to hear that God is love, God is love, right? That, what that means is God is okay with every unholy thing I do because he's love, right? That's that wrong understanding of love. If you're paying attention closely, and, and I tell you what, I was quite familiar with that passage, I picked it out for today, but I noticed something when he was reading it I didn't notice before. Right after the scriptures define God as love, the definition of love, he turns around and talks about liars. Seems unloving, doesn't it? To call somebody a liar. Brethren, it's not unloving at all to be honest with a person. Oh, we can have sinful motivations. I can't wait to tell them what a liar they are. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm talking. <laughs> I'm talking about being honest with a person. Jesus' love for His disciple, Simon Peter, Petros, the rock He would build the church on. His motivation being the definition of love was to rebuke Peter in his wrong thinking. to, To starkly hit him with the idea that he was espousing demonic plans. This was an act of love. So he washed his disciples' feet. He rebuked Peter. There's many more examples, many. But the last one I'll give you here is our Savior demonstrated his love for his wayward, faithless, cowardice children by going to the cross and taking on himself the wrath of the Father that we deserve. Right? Uh, the most uh, defining momentary act, the demonstration of love is to take the grief of someone else, the the penalty, it's much bigger than that, talking on a human level. That there's somebody that you care for that has made a mess of things and justly deserves what's coming at them. Yet you voluntarily, not, not so you can tell everybody how great you are, but because of your love for them, you take the trouble for them. That is biblical love that is taking that hardship on yourself for no benefit of yourself, motivated by love. That is personified by what Christ did and not gaining anything from God was in need of nothing, is in need of nothing, will never be in need of anything. By definition, He is God. But willfully took on, Christ took on the wrath of the Father that we deserve in a demonstration of love for us, reconciling unworthy sinners, and then tells us, love me and love your neighbor as yourself. Demonstrates it first, and then calls us, to obedience, motivated by love. That is our first point. Our second point leads us to our second point. The light dispelling darkness. The shorter point, it's just taking that last half of verse 8, where John references light and darkness or light overcoming darkness, John adds a statement at the end of verse 8. He tells us this new commandment is true because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So again, for paying attention. You might be a lot smarter than I, and it wasn't as difficult at a, at a first reading through this, analyzing it. What does it mean? Why does John speak this way? I'm going to tell you an old commandment. Actually, it's new, and it's true because the darkness is passing away, and the light's already shining. It might be a little easier to understand, but why tell us this? What does the Holy Spirit want us to see in applying this? He's given us work to do, and then told us the dark is passing away, the light's here. What does that mean for us? If we're following John's inspired writing, we may be puzzled about how this statement relates to loving God and your brother. Maybe not. But it's clear that John understands the limited perspective of man, that although cultural uh, cultural changes, uh, technology changes, specific challenges will arise, nevertheless, sinful man always has a propensity to think that things were just easier before. Obedience was just easier before. If we're really focusing in right now on loving one another, loving our brother and sister, know that by nature the majority of us would think about it like, well, that was just easier then. it's harder now. True? Yes? No? Does it seem like that? I think it does. How much easier is it to love God without the distractions of email, text messages, social media, without a heavy workload, the kids' uh, workload, the kids' sports, music lessons? How much easier was it to love your neighbor when we lived in an, ag- an agrarian society? We passed each other in the marketplace. We have air conditioning at our house. Our neighbors have air conditioning. We rarely see them. We're always inside, right? How much easier would it have been for them? Now it's just so much harder. That is how we tend to think. But the truth of the matter is, at some level, some things generally are harder. But many things are easier. Many things are easier now for us when it comes to loving our brothers and sisters. If I I wanted to provide a meal for you, that's one of the smallest things, right? I I can send it to you from my phone in five minutes and it just arrives at your house. There's there's so many tools that we have that make it easier. It's only when we focus on the challenges that it may seem more difficult than it actually is. But regardless of the specific challenge, John draws our attention to the fact that our greatest challenge has already been overcome. That is how, how does he word it here at the beginning? He tells us this new commandment is true because the, new darkness is, uh, the, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That's how we have the ability to do this. The darkness really is passing away. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. He's bringing all enemies under his foot Things are progressing. There are more believers on the planet now than there's ever been. More uh, men and women made in the image and likeness of God indwelt with the Spirit of God on the earth. The, The darkness is passing away. Christ is reigning. And because of this, John tells us that we can actually have progress. We can have success loving one another. We can do these things, brothers and sisters, and have victory and success in these areas. Well, that brings me to our, our third point. Walk without stumbling. So John tells us, of an old commandment that's new, love God, love your brothers and sisters. He tells us this is a true statement. Christ is reigning, and the darkness is. And then he tells us in verses nine through eleven to do this without stumbling. In these last three verses, John gives a, a contrasted way of living. Now it is true that the Lord sanctifies us. And we are often not in a, in a binary state, right? It's, it's progress, not here or there. We grow in holiness. It is a process. However, we're never stagnant. So I think it's easy. I think I'd have agreement totally that it's not a binary state. We're either not, we're not unsanctified or sanctified. We, we understand sanctification is a lifelong process culminating in glorification when we step into glory. But we're not stagnant. So don't think that we're stagnant. What do I mean by that? Thank you for asking. We are actively growing in holiness or we're hardening our heart. Right now as you sit there, you're actively doing this. You are growing in holiness. You're growing in sensitivity to the Word of God or you are hardening your heart. Now, it is a complex thing because you know, if you've walked with the Lord for some time, it's often areas, right? Wherever the Holy Spirit is illuminating, you're working there, and you see the growth, and then the areas you ignore, some things kind of come back up. So it is a battle and it's real, and it's not, it's not like a, a straight plane. There's peaks, there's valleys. But be assured that you are not stagnant in anywhere, any area of your life that the Lord has brought uh, illumination to. You are actively moving towards Him, or you are hardening your heart, you do not remain stagnant. We're not stationary. As we saw in the last passage of John that I preached on, John calls those who don't keep God's law, what's he call them? Liars. Without the truth in them. There's a similarity here. John says the Christian who says he is in the light yet hates his brother, is in darkness, stumbling around. Let's look at just a portion of what uh, Charlie read in First John 4, uh, 20. It's just a page over probably for you guys. 1 John 4.20 If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. John lays out here a very logical argument. Very logical. The greater commandment is love God. That is the greater commandment, right? The second is likened unto it. So in order of importance, God is at the top. In order of importance, in the commands, God is at the top. Love God. But when it comes to obedience, when it comes to a demonstration of this, giving outward signs of love, sorry, but when it comes to obedience, when it comes to giving outward signs that we love God, our love for one another is the first demonstration. So God is at the top when it comes to importance, and the second is like it, love our neighbors as ourselves. But the demonstration, the first demonstration that we will see is how we treat one another, especially that peculiar love that we should have for the brethren. Remember when Jesus forgave Uh, The Sins of the Paralytic Man in Matthew 9. You guys remember that account? The scribes thought it was blasphemy that Jesus would pronounce the man forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God, I think, they responded. You remember that? But Jesus displayed that he had the power to forgive sins by commanding the paralytic man to rise up and walk. You see, the greater miracle was what? It was the forgiveness of sins. That was the greater miracle. But because that could not be perceived by the eyes, Christ gave his adversary's his adversary visible proof of something important, but still of less significance, and that's what we're talking about here. So the, great, the, the paralytic man is, is forgiven his sins. That's the great miracle. The greatest miracle for an individual. But the demonstration that Christ had the authority and power to do that was He healed His physical body, and in like manner, the greatest thing is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the great thing. But the demonstration to know that you are doing that—that this happening in our hearts—is how we treat one another. That is the demonstration. Because this could never be perceived by the eyes, Christ gave his adversaries visible proof of something important, but of less significance. John says, if you do not love your brother, you are walking in darkness. You are walking in darkness. Let me illustrate the idea of walking or stumbling around in darkness. Have you ever lived in a house that has stairs inside the house, right? Where you, every day, up and down your stairs. If you've ever had a house with stairs and you've tried to navigate them in the dark, maybe you've encountered this uh, experience to where you're going up and your mind thinks that there's another step there, but it's dark, and so you do this kind of weird goose step march thing, and for a split second, your brain is trying to figure out what is happening because you're, you're not even thinking about it. You're, you're walking in the dark, and all you know is everything was going fine. And then all of a sudden, something's very wrong, right? Same thing happens at the bottom. You're walking. You think there's another step there. And if you're going down, that might just take you out when you think you're going down and your leg stops. It's dangerous. <laughs> it's happened to me. Here's the point. When you fail to love your brother, John says you're actually hating him. Nowhere in between. Right? Understand how he uses the language. I'm not trying to overrate something, but, but this, that's, what he's, that's what he's saying here. right? That not... We, I guess we tend to think of hate simply in the context of commission, as we do. You say, angry, you yell, you use unkind words, you sabotage, you lie, you slander. All hateful. But there's a way to hate that takes no action. In fact, the inaction is the hateful act. You guys track with me on that? The, the, The verse... From the Proverbs. the Proverbs is often misquoted. I might be misquoting the reference there. It's in Psalms or Proverbs. I think it's Proverbs. Uh, Spare the rod, spoil the child. Have you guys heard that? Have you heard that? Yes? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he who spares the rod hates his child. The Bible describes the inaction. A parent that simply does not discipline. With the rod. is how it's used there. The parent that does not discipline is actively hating their child. Does that person think that they're hating their child? Absolutely not. They've been watching those rom-coms. They have the wrong idea of what love is, right? They have that sentimental idea. I don't want to make my child cry. They'll pay the penalty of that, won't they? Unless God graciously steps in, he often does. That's not the guarantee. We are told to discipline our children and to not. is an act of hate as defined by the Scriptures. In a similar manner, when we fail to love one another, we are acting in a hateful manner towards the brethren. God is gracious. God is kind. Often we do this out of ignorance. And the Lord deals with us kindly, He is a holy God, and He deals with sin, but as a loving Father who opens and illuminates the heart and the eyes and the ears, and the Lord says, the holy Spirit says, he brings to remembrance, not in an audible voice, He brings to remembrance His word, sermons, things you've read, theologically rich songs you think i don't I don't do that I ought to to to, to care about this I, I ought to I got to." Speak with that person. i, I got to reconcile with this person. i, I got to reach out. i I got to do these things. Again, again, much in this sermon is actually due, but you must take the context of this love for God that produces this action. Right? This, all of this, is instruction for children of God. This is not general person, this is how you be a good person. No. This is a loving God who loves His children, who's instructing His children on how you live a healthy, vibrant Christian life. And He's saying He has made us. And He's made us in a way that we need each other. That God's children need fellowship with one another in a local assembly. It's vital. And then when we get together, we ought not to be just our own little atomistic people who just kind of sit in the same room for too long every Sunday, right? Right? We get that from our culture, this idea that we're just individuals. I think I mentioned that last time. You, you go to the store, and you got, there's aisles, not an aisle, aisles of cereal. They're, they're like all the same thing. But if you want blue crunch berries or red crunch berries, they got it for you there, right? We come with that in our minds, we come here. And we get our own little segmented uh, pews. Nobody get too close to us. There's a line, stay away from me. And, and, and we just, we, I'm not saying you guys do that, but that's in our thinking, right? We're bombarded with it constantly. We come here and God has told us we are to live in community. We need one another. We're built for one another in fellowship and community. Well, I have some applications for you. I will explain what I mean in the applications. There is a uh, book I read last year. It was a little convicting. It was called uh, by, by Doug Wilson, How to Exasperate Your Wife. And there is a cartoon of a man in like leopard underwear standing on a couch, holding the remote control victorious, right? And the idea, the way that it's laid out is, look at, this is how you would do something bad, and then the reader reads it, and like, I think I might do that. So that's, that's the idea behind this application here, um, that maybe this will stick in our minds a little better. As I was mulling over, how do I illustrate this in a way that we can take with us, right? So tips, the first application is tips for hating your brother. Tips for hating your brother. Number one, lie. When someone at church asks you how you are doing, always say fine, even if you're not. Telling the truth can be uncomfortable or awkward in addition, sharing your struggles may result in people praying for you or drawing closer to you. This could result in unsolicited text messages of encouragement or even someone showing up with a meal for you. Right? Terrible. The second subpoint tips for hating your brother. So lie and then wait. If you see someone making sinful, dangerous, or just unwise choices, never offer a kind word of correction, especially from the Scriptures. This could result in them not enjoying their sin as much as they were, or even lead to repentance. Remember, secret love feels more holy than open rebuke. So lie, wait, and then three, remove. Remove yourself. Avoid prayer meeting, small groups, and the elders meeting. At these meetings, and all other ones, at these meetings, people have been known to share praises, burdens, or even their feelings. Yuck. Attending these meetings with any regularity could result in you seeing someone cry, disagreeing over an interpretation of the text or sharing important feedback with the elders. These meetings can be long and they'll hamper your opportunities to binge your favorite streaming service, service or social media. Although hating your brother comes naturally to your flesh, you will have to work hard to overcome the spirit's prompting. With practice, it gets easier. good for me to hear those things second point of application walk in victory walk in victory as you seek to obey this great commandment you will stumble and you will fail don't believe the lie that you have to work your way back into the good graces of god The darkness is indeed passing away. It's a reality. It's true. No matter how far you've fallen, no matter how much the darkness has blinded your eyes, Christ has already provided everything necessary for you to walk in victory. Though you may have taken a long road away, the path back is quite short. Repent. Get accountability and walk in the light. And then the third point really is not an application. It's just a clarity um, of this, and it's Christians can do this. Only Christians can do this. Christ told the Pharisees, He told the people regarding the Pharisees, unless your holiness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't make any sense to us and because we know the hearts of the Pharisees. They've been revealed. But the context that that's given is, is there, they were the most holy people that were known, right? The, the, the definition of a holy life in the minds of the hearers there were the Pharisees. And, and Jesus says, you've got to eclipse that. What's my point? It's impossible to do this. It's impossible. If you're a religious person and you want to try harder, you missed everything. This is impossible for the person who is not indwelt by God Himself through conversion because it is the the removal of the heart of stone and the heart of flesh given with its affections on Christ that makes this possible. So the danger there is that the legalist or the the one who wants to collect religious merits hears this and they think, I'm going to do it in my own strength. And the Christian hears this. And if there's conviction, it's, Lord, I don't do this. I'm sorry, I've sinned against you. I want to love you more, God. I want to obey your word. Help me. In these areas if you're outside of christ none of this is possible by your own power you know stand above the abyss of torment and anguish under the wrath of god dead in your sins look to god who has commanded you to repent yet invites you to a life filled with the splendid knowledge of communion with your creator and a real relationship with your neighbor don't let so great a salvation pass you by.